Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. I have Marquita Del Carpio Landry. Uh, she's an assistant professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering at uh, UC Berkeley. We're going to be talking about uh, nanomaterials and single molecule fluorescence microscopy. So, Marquita, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, what's the point of uh, single mo- molecule fluorescence? What can it do for uh, science? Well, a lot of our research um, focuses on being able to control what happens with individual molecules, um, and our focus is on, on individual nanoparticles. The advantage here being that if we can control something very small that's on the size scale of life or the building blocks of life, then it'll be easier to control living systems or to learn more about living systems. Uh, so, for example, some of the nanoparticles that we've most recently worked with um, have involved these uh, nanotubes, which have a diameter of one nanometer. So that's about the size of a molecule of water, uh, a very small particle. Um, and what it can do is it can deliver DNA into plant cells. Um, and this is uh, important because it allows us to get DNA into plant cells, allows those cells to utilize that DNA for beneficial purposes, um, but uh, avoids some of the issues with regulatory oversight over plants that are otherwise transformed using conventional approaches. Um, so, uh, quick, quick question. What do, you, what do you mean regulatory oversight? You, are there plants that you can't work with for some reason because they were genetically modified by Monsanto or something like that? So not so much from the working with these plants, but from the perspective of, of putting them on the market for human consumption. Um, so plants that are genetically modified using current techniques such as agrobacterium um, or biolistic transformation uh, will often incorporate bits of the foreign DNA into the plant's own genome. Um, and this is the, the trademark of a genetically modified organism. Uh, and so if we can better control where the DNA goes by putting it on a particle and avoiding it, from getting integrated into the plant genome, then we can avoid the, uh, the lengthy and often costly process of regulatory oversight over that particular plant or that crop as a genetically modified organism before it is uh, suitable for, uh, for the market. Oh, okay. So, once it, so if uh, your particle endogenizes into the DNA, now it's considered to be genetically modified and then it, uh, it falls under all these regulations that make it hard to, to get out there and use. Correct, correct. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to control where DNA goes and, and the technologies that, that we do have for creating genetically modified plants um, are ones that don't provide any control over where the DNA ends up in the plant. Whereas with nanoparticles, um, that level of control is, um, is much higher because of, of the size scale of the molecules that we're working with. That's really interesting. Huh. So we kind of just jumped in, you know, as, uh, 
would you mind just summarizing your research in general? And then I'd like to ask you know, a few more questions about the basics of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so currently, we, my lab works on, on two different research areas, and both of which rely on our ability to ma manipulate these single molecules or these single nanoparticles. Uh, the first is, is an area where we can deliver uh, biomolecules such as DNA, RNA, or protein into plants. Uh, in a way that allows those plants to utilize these molecules uh, for beneficial purposes. So, for example, um, giving plants genetic advantages to resist pests, to resist uh, drought conditions, uh, et cetera. Um, and the second area of the lab is, is the use, again, of single nanoparticles. Uh, but in this case, we can chemically modify these nanoparticles to be uh, optically responsive to small molecules. So, for example, uh, these molecules will be off uh, in the absence of a molecule like dopamine, and these molecules will then turn on in the presence of dopamine. Um, and the reason that this is important is because dopamine is a, uh, it's called a neuromodulator uh, that signals between neurons in the brain, and it's a, a classical target for uh, antidepressants, antipsychotics, uh, quite a bit is known about aberrations in the circuitry of dopamine and how that leads to different psychiatric or neurodegenerative disease. Uh, so our approach here is to be able to develop probes so that we can image dopamine both in healthy brains and also uh, in diseased brains. So how do you, um, do you produce these nanoparticles and then attach a fluorescent marker? Are you doing the whole creation of them from scratch? We do, yeah. So we, we, we do a lot of the chemistry for the nanoparticle surfaces in our lab. Um, the nanoparticles by themselves are not particularly responsive to one molecule or another, or they're not inherently able to deliver DNA, RNA, or protein. So that depends on our ability to, uh, for each individual molecule, modify the surface for our intended purposes, whether that's grafting a cargo or whether that's making it optically responsive to a uh, target molecule. The advantage is that the nanoparticles themselves are intrinsically fluorescent. So all we have to do is, uh, is modulate or control what molecules cause a change in fluorescence. Uh, and that's the bigger challenge is getting these particles to respond to dopamine, uh, which is our target, but not respond to something like uh, glutamate, which is also found in the brain, but is a different molecule altogether. What is fluorescence and uh, why do nanoparticles naturally seem to have it? Yeah, so that's a good question. The fluorescence is the, the phenomena by which uh, a material can emit light. Um, so if the material can emit light, then this light can be used as a signal uh, to uh, tell researchers about the presence or absence of, of molecules. Um, and the reason that nanoparticles can often have these fluorescent properties um, is based on quantum confinement. So this is a principle whereby bulk quantities of a material, so the lead in your pencil is a bulk quantity of carbon, is not emitting light. But as soon as you reduce the size of that material to the nanoscale, the electrons in that material are now being confined to a very small space. And that causes quantum effects uh, that cause the molecule or that nanoparticle to become 
uh, responsive to its environment in a way that it hadn't before when it was a larger piece of material. And so these nanoparticles uh, often have not just unique fluorescent properties, but really high, for example, tensile strengths. They're very stiff per unit of mass. Um, they can have other unique properties in terms of their uh, conductivity. So carbon is not usually conductive, uh, but at the nanoscale, it can be. Um, and all of this is because of these, these size effects that confine the, the component kind of physical molecules uh, to a very small size. But a, um, a nanoparticle, I mean, it's not in bulk with its like kind of molecules, but it's in bulk with all kinds of other molecules, especially inside of a, you know, of a plant or a living creature. But it still fluoresces even under that circumstance? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. So long as it is uh, synthesized in a way in the chemistry bench so that it can remain as a single particle, um, it will still fluoresce. And the challenge of getting it into a biological environment um, is less one of having it still be fluorescent and more one of its uh, performing its intended purpose despite it being in a more complex environment. So for imaging dopamine, um, the selectivity issue, being able to only image dopamine and not have any cross-reactivity with other molecules in these much more complicated environments, uh, or for gene, and gene delivery or DNA delivery, uh, making sure that the DNA is still accessible to the plant, um, but also not integrate into the plant. It's a careful balance of the two. So is, a, is one part of the nanoparticle fluorescing, like one uh, active site of its, you know, of its, of its molecular structure, because when it bonds to another substance, even temporarily, wouldn't that stop its fluorescence? Yeah, that's that's a good question. That's part of the challenge is that we know that dopamine binding to the nanotube is what causes it to turn on in its fluorescence. And there are a lot of molecules that look a lot like dopamine but are not dopamine. And so what we need to do is exclude those molecules from from binding. And the way we do that is by uh, functionalizing the surface of the nanotube with these polymers. And it's actually these polymers that are able to say, okay, well, this is dopamine, I'll let you bind, but you're not dopamine, so you're not gonna bind. Um, and so these polymers are kind of like these bodyguards, these molecular bodyguards around the nanoparticle surface um, and allow the particle to, uh, to exist in a single particle state. Um, but also allow uh, the particle to respond only to something that, that binds selectively. Is, under, is fluorescence very well understood? Um, you know, uh, controlling the particular wavelength of light that is fluoresced or the, uh, you know, the energy of that light or other characteristics of it? Yes, yes and no. I think that the basic phenomena by which fluorescence occurs are pretty well understood. However, being able to control that is a little bit more difficult. So. One of the challenges for fluorescence imaging, especially in biology, is that, you know, there's a reason that if you look at your hand, you, you can't see light going through it. And that's because the light of the room is mostly visible light and it gets scattered off of your tissues. So basically, you can't see very deep in biological tissues. Now, there's another wavelength range of light um, that's a little bit lower in energy called infrared. Um, and this infrared wavelength range is really nice because unlike visible light, it can go through skin, tissue, and even bone. Um, but it's very difficult to make particles or make fluorophores that will fluoresce in this wavelength range just because it's so low energy. Um, so one of the advantages of, of nanoparticles specifically 
uh, these nanotubes is that they fluoresce in the infrared wavelength range. And that's uh, appealing to us because if we want to image something in the brain, obviously that, that signal has to cross through brain tissue, it has to uh, cross through blood vessels, and it has to cross through the cranium unless we want to do some extensive surgeries. Uh, so being able to carefully control the color of these particles is, is challenging uh, and something that, that we've worked on to specifically target this uh, infrared range. So are there other biological me mechanisms that owe credit to the, to the effect that uh, you know, fluorescence was used to figure them out? I'm sorry, could you please repeat? Oh, are there any major biological mechanisms that you know, fluorescence was what figured them out so that science could mm. know what's going on? Any yeah. Examples? Yeah, a lot of a lot of examples in, in biology. I would say in biology, the way that we learn about biology is predominantly done with fluorescence microscopy these days. Um, so one of the kind of key discoveries was uh, green fluorescent protein, which is a protein that's expressed in the jellyfish and gives off green light. Um, and this technology um, has been used to uh, to express this fluorescent protein in different, for example, cellular compartments or with other proteins so that we can learn more about where and when proteins are expressed uh, in, in cells or tissues. Um, there are other modalities for studying biology, but I would say light or fluorescence is probably the, the main one that continues to be used today. Does uh, fluorescence, since it's coming from you know the tissue and the particles themselves, does it overcome the limits of um, normal microscopy, you know, things that would normally require an electron microscope to look at, can they now be seen with uh, lesser power microscopes? It, it depends what the goal is. So electron microscopy, I would say, is still very much the gold standard for looking at very, very small things. And when I say very small, I mean atomic or near atomic resolution. Um, fluorescence microscopy is limited spatially by um, by wavelength of, wavelengths of light. So once you start wanting to look at things on the size of molecules, uh, wavelength of light is 10 times longer than that. So you can't measure something smaller by using a probe that's bigger. So fluorescence microscopy is really good for, I would say, nanometer to micron scale imaging with the advantage that you can do so in, in real time in living things, whereas electron microscopy, your sample is it's very dead by the time you look at it. So you're looking at a snapshot instead of a video. Um, but by using these different techniques, um, you kind of start putting together pieces of the puzzle uh, for how brain tissue and activity looks like or uh, plant tissue for that matter too. Right, but at the nanoscale, there's still plenty of biological processes that uh, we can figure out with fluorescence, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah fluorescence is... Um, is really great for dynamic tracking and with some computational tricks can get down to the nanoscale, absolutely. So what kind of interesting phenomenon have you observed now that you can see what's going on in certain situations? I think one of the more exciting results that we've had with our dopamine imaging studies um, is in being able to look at the dynamics of, of dopamine signaling. So dopamine signaling between two neurons or multiple neurons in the brain happens on the order of a few seconds. So dopamine is released, and then it's reuptaken, um, and it's really kind of the messaging system of, of the brain. Um, and one of the studies that we undertook uh, was in looking at the effects of, of drugs um, that act on dopamine transporters, which are the proteins that modulate the kinetics of, of this dopamine signaling. 
Um, and what we find is that um, the, the mode of action of these drugs is, is fairly well known. Uh, so, for example, a drug uh, Quinperol, um, which um, is a psychoactive drug, um, will decrease the amount of dopamine in the brain. Um, but because we're able to image it with, this, with these nanoscale probes, we're able to see how each individual release site responds to the drug. Um, and instead of all of these different release sites behaving in the predicted fashion, which is to decrease the release of dopamine, we see that most of them do, um, but there's a significant fraction that actually have the opposite effect, so the opposite effect to, uh, to the drug. Um, and so this heterogeneity uh, in how individual neurons are responding to these drugs um, is interesting uh, because it suggests that the drug might be having uh, effects that differ on a neuron-to-neuron -neuron basis, which is a phenomenon that can't be captured if you're using a bulk measurement and averaging over all of the neurons in the brain. Um, and so we're, we're pursuing this avenue further just to see what the cause might be of this variability. What about uh, transit of materials through the blood-brain barrier? Is that already well understood, or have you seen new things because of the fluorescence? The blood-brain barrier is, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult uh, barrier to cross and one that's really important for uh, especially drug delivery. Um, because a lot of our studies are done with direct uh, injection of the probe to the site where we want to measure, um, it's not a barrier that we have extensively studied, so we're just more brute force incorporating our probes uh, into the sites that we want to take our measurements in. Um, but it is possible, and there, there are certainly other research, researchers that are looking into uh, developing nanoscale probes for uh, delivery through the blood-brain barrier. So what does it tell you, going back to the neurons, you said that um, things aren't the same across all neurons. What do you think uh, constitutes the difference and why? Uh, one of the hypotheses that, that we have um, is that the drug itself might be more promiscuous than originally thought. So it might have the intended effect on 90% of neurons, but the opposite effect on, on 10%. Um, perhaps a more likely explanation is that the brain tissue itself is not homogenous, so that some neurons or some release sites have more of the proteins that are sensitive to the drug than others. Um, and this might cause some discrepancies in how those release sites respond to those drugs. Um, so those are kind of the two main possibilities right now that we're investigating to see uh, which of the two or perhaps a combination of the two are responsible for uh, the, the variability in how parts of the brain respond to drugs. Okay. And then it, in plants, um, can you talk about any of the projects there? Any particular ones that are interesting? Yeah, yeah. With uh, with our plant uh, work um, here, the the broad goal is to be able to engineer uh, crops um, that are uh, resistant to uh, pests, to resistant to uh, changes, rapid changes in global climate, um, and a lot of this can be accomplished through genetic engineering of of plants. Um, so one of the ways that we're moving forward with our technology is with uh, a technique known as CRISPR. Um, so this is a genome editing technology that um, can perform very uh, sensitive and very targeted edits to the plant genome um, to confer some of these desirable traits. Um, so by combining CRISPR with nanomaterials, 
we can get the advantage of the precision of the CRISPR technology to change only the part of the genome that we want and also the control over where that CRISPR DNA goes to make sure it doesn't go into the plant genome and avoid some of the regulatory oversight that would normally accompany these types of studies. Okay. Um, what would you say is uh, the next couple of years, any big breakthroughs that you think you're close to achieving with this? I think with uh, the plant genome editing, if, if we could show uh, CRISPR editing without integration of the foreign DNA um, would provide a, a method for uh, both industry and academic researchers to manipulate plants um, with, uh, with perhaps higher throughput than can currently be achieved. Um, the second potential uh, breakthrough or benefit um, would be uh, just in the ability to transform plants that current technologies don't work for. Um, so there are species of plants that are rare uh, or that um, for some reason are not tractable currently for genetic manipulation. And by using nanotechnology, we might be able to overcome a lot of those, uh, a lot of those barriers in those plant species and be able to either learn more about them genetically or be able to engineer them to be, uh, yeah, more robust. So in the presence of, of CRISPR-Cas9, I mean, I guess from what I understand, it'll cut a section of uh, DNA and then the, but, but in the presence of it, localized fragments of DNA can be inserted into the plant's genome unintentionally. Is that what's happening? Yeah, yeah. So regardless of the DNA that's being delivered, be it CRISPR or not, uh, with the two technologies that currently are, are the workhorses for plant genetic modification, um, there's no way to control where the DNA goes after it goes into the plant. So you're just kind of shooting DNA into the plant and it'll go somewhere. Um, and oftentimes that is bits of the DNA getting incorporated into the plant genome. Um, so with nanotechnology, the advantage there is that you're not breaking open cell walls or using a, a pathogen like agrobacterium uh, that would insert DNA randomly in the genome. Uh, you're using particles that kind of slip through slowly all of the plant barriers and allow the DNA to linger to have its beneficial effect, um, but not integrate into the genome, which, uh, which often has you know, some scientific disadvantages, but also some uh, regulatory disadvantages. Well, in these other systems, what's doing the integrating of the DNA? Are they just more aggressive yeah. methods, and what, how does it work? Yeah, pretty much. So with agrobacterium, this is the, the pathogen method. Um, agrobacterium has co-evolved with plants to infect plants, and so uh, it has evolved to be as aggressive as possible, in, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so when it inserts DNA into the plant, the most beneficial way to continue producing its transgenic DNA is by putting it into the plant genome and kind of hijacking the plant genome to now produce its own uh, protein products. Um, and so that's the mechanism for agrobacterium. And then for biolistic delivery, um, here you take these gold particles um, and you coat them uh, with your DNA of interest. And then you take something called a gene gun. Um, and by using high pressure, you shoot the particles into the plant. So this is a bit more of a brute force method that breaks open the plant cell wall, the plant cell membrane. Um, and because the cell is under some stress uh, from this process, it will undergo uh, endogenous repair. So it'll start repairing its membranes, it'll start repairing its DNA. And as part of the repair process, bits of foreign DNA end up getting accidentally, if you want to think of it that way, 
incorporated into the plant genome, often multiple copies per, per genome. Um, so that's the mechanism of foreign DNA integration in, in this latter technology. So have you been able to yet um, make like the CRISPR-Cas9 process for us in these current uh, genetic tools, or you're not there yet? So but this is something that we're currently working on. Um, our early work has shown that we can get, get proteins to express in plants, specifically this green fluorescent protein that I talked about before. Um, and we've also shown that even though the green fluorescent protein, we can observe it and it expresses well, um, that there's no trace of the transgenic DNA in the, in, the, in the genome. So that was kind of a proof of principle study that we needed to do uh, to show efficacy of the platform, but also uh, to show that there was no transgene integration. Um, so the next step now is to combine this technology with CRISPR. Okay, very good. Well, what's the best way for uh, people to get in touch and to find out more about your work on both sides? Yeah, so we, um, we have a, a lab website, uh, LandryLab.com, where we uh, post uh, all of our manuscripts. We post short blurbs uh, that are um, laid public friendly to describe the technologies. And we also have uh, a Twitter account, at Landry underscore lab, uh, where we share a lot of our results. Um, we hold group meetings, so anyone who's local is, is welcome to join our group meetings and uh, see some of our recent uh, results in person. Well, that's great. Marquita, it's been interesting, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 